everybody. Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 46. I'm Joel. And today we're going to be talking with Margaret Wheatley. And this was for me an incredibly heartfelt conversation, an incredibly sobering conversation. If you don't know Margaret Wheatley, she was the author of the seminal book, Leadership and the New Science, which really had a very optimistic view about a new paradigm that was coming in that could really benefit the world. And Since then, Margaret's views have changed quite dramatically. So in this podcast, that's what we're going to be talking about. We'll talk about the the phase of collapse that Margaret believes we've entered into. And so we're going to talk about what are the signs of that collapse and what kind of response does she advocate and why does she see coaches playing such a powerful role in these times? So Margaret Wheatley is the author of nine books and over a hundred articles. You can find those on our website. She's taught with Pema Chodron, shared the stage with the Dalai Lama. She's been working globally with different cultures, uh, communities, organizations for decades on, on leadership and cultural change. And she's the creator of the uh, program Warriors for the Human Spirit, which is all about training people to be beacons of presence and insight, wisdom and compassion in these times. As usual, I'd be deeply grateful if you'd consider sharing this podcast. I want as many coaches to benefit from these conversations as possible. And also, if you'd be willing to leave a review, that would be super cool. So without further ado, here is Margaret Wheatley. So Margaret, so good to see you. How are you doing? Well, it's important to maintain one's internal peace and sanity as the world collapses around us with increasing rapidity. Mm. That's better than saying, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm fine. Well, best day ever. (laughs) I've got to say, that's the first time a guest has ever, you know, started with that opening. can you just share more of what you mean? I mean, because I'm sure this is the topic we're going to be exploring today. Okay. Yes. Well, I have recently decided I needed a new name or a neon sign on my forehead with the phrase spoiler alert. Mm. <laughs> because everything that I speak about, teach about, feel about, and notice about the world is increasingly evident not that we're entering collapse, but that we are in collapse. And this is not just an American phenomenon. It's happening in England with Brexit. It already happened in Venezuela. It's happening in most elections now, even in Canada, which go to the right wing Mm -hmm. and the development of hatred and fear and xenophobia, all of which are signs of a civilization in collapse when we turn on one another rather than recognize the enemy within. Mm. Knowing that, which I deeply know, having written about it and all the work I do now is both noticing and then preparing leaders to be warriors for the human spirit. This is all within the unavoidable conclusion that we are a culture in collapse. Now, what do we do now? How do we serve? But knowing that, and it being my work still does not, um, it does not prevent 
my many, many moments of absolute rage at what's happening and despair at what's happening. But I've recently come to the realization that I can allow myself to be in despair. I can allow myself to feel rage because I'm not going to use either of those as the basis for my action. Mm. So I just, I allow them. It's, it's like a part of my bedrock foundation at this point is to honor the despair and the grief for what is happening and to allow my rage because I know I won't go out on the streets um, and act on it, even though it also, that level of rage that I feel frequently puts me in touch in a very compassionate way with people who are going onto the streets and are turning violent and are feeling this level of incredible frustration and powerlessness. I mean, just look at Hong Kong right now. Who would have thought that that would be going on there or what happened in Paris over the past several months? Or So my own rage is a window into what it feels like, but I also have the blessing of practice, so I know I'm not going to act on it. So that's a very long answer, but it's, it's my clarity right now of how to be with this time. I'm not afraid of my despair any longer. It's yeah. just part of being awake. Well, yeah, and it seems like that's an essential capacity. You know, we started off by sharing that before we started this interview of how can we develop a kind of presence which can you know, allow for that kind of rage or the, you know, grief or sadness or despair in a way that, you know, it doesn't then close us down and we become apathetic or nihilistic or whatever that we, yeah. or, or aggressive or violent, you know. Or yeah. suicidal. Or suicidal, yeah. 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 People just want to get out of here as fast as they can, some yeah. of them. And yeah. so, yeah, how can we, how can we kind of stay how can we kind of stay sane and compassionate perhaps in, in the face of uh, all of this? Right. I guess, right. you know, a question that comes up immediately is, do you feel when you talk about collapse, and I want to ask you more about the signs you see of that, you know, it would be very easy to kind of look for hope immediately or you might even challenge that word. I don't know. But No, you can use it around me, but you know I'm going to comment. That's all. <laughs> well, so, um, but when you talk about collapse, you know, I mean, are you talking about uh, extinction? Or are you talking about... I'm talking about societal, of- societal collapse. I mean, others are speaking very poignantly and thoroughly on planetary systems collapse of ecosystems and climate and oceans and such but i'm speaking about collapse in a very definite way that it's the collapse of a civilization of our social structures of our community of our way of being and this is all outlined um, in my most recent book which is now two years old but is becoming more and more accurate as a reading of who do we choose to be and the pattern of collapse. This is in answer to what am I seeing? The pattern of collapse is so well defined by historians. There's, there's no issue with this pattern. And 
and what I'm tracking now, which others are tracking also, if they know the patterns of collapse, is at the last stage of a civilization, what one Sir John Glubb called the age of decadence, mm. people become absorbed in entertainment. They worship movie stars, musicians, and uh, sports heroes. They ask for entitlements, which they're given. They demand entitlements, even if they're not given them. The leaders feel they are impervious. They cannot fail. And they take more and more power and resources to themselves. So the elite always, as we're watching now with dread and horror, the elites in every civilization always form a very closed circle and just grab whatever they can for themselves with no thought for the morrow and no thought for other people and this increased suffering that's happening everywhere. Mm. The other really powerful sign of this last stage of collapse is the infighting that goes on in every civilization. People turn on one another. They fear the stranger, but they turn on their neighbors. And with all that infighting, no one truly notices the enemy at the gates. Now, in this case, I think the enemy is climate. And with all of the, they're not even warnings, they're cries now for please, we need to come together as a planetary culture and do what needs to be done to save our home. Those cries are going unheeded while different countries still try and carve their own way through. The United States is the primary and most terrible example of this nativistic approach to climate. And so we'll continue to argue and fight among ourselves. We'll continue to deny the emergency that is now climate. And that will undo us as a species for sure. So um, that's happening now. So there's no doubt that we're in collapse. Mm. Absolutely no doubt. And, and another way of looking at that is not only to mark it against the pattern of collapse, which is really, I could read you passages um, from Glub's work that I did put in my own book. And you think you're just, I'm reading to you a description of now. Well, I am. And it fits into a pattern. Mm. But the other piece that I think is so essential, and that's really how I'd like to focus this time with everyone, is what do we do? How do we be? How do we find meaning and purpose for amongst ourselves? We're all people who have wanted to make a difference in our work, in what we do, what we contribute. And now the question is, what will make a difference? So the hard, hard realization is that when you truly honor where we are on this pattern, it changes the idea, the sense of what is meaningful work. It's no longer striving as so many of us did. I'm going to put myself on that list for sure. As so many of us did where we were trying to change these systems. There were people who worked in the environment. There were people who worked for social justice. There are people who worked for children and education and changing our military industrial complex. All of that is a done deal. Those systems, I wrote about this in 2012 in So Far From Home. These are emergent 
systems and you don't change an emergent system. You just start over with new ones. But we're dealing now with the momentum and the dynamics of collapse. And so how does one define meaningful work? And this is, for me, is the essential question that I want all of us to be in. What mm. is meaningful work at this point? I have answered that question in two ways. The first mm. is to prepare ourselves to serve. This is my training in Warriors for the Human Spirit. Training ourselves to be able to serve as leaders. This is where I think coaches have an enormous role to play, and I'll speak about that in a moment. But how do we uh, prepare ourselves so that we can continue to stay as leaders and support other people and not be taken down and not fall away in cynicism and despair, but actually use our recognition of this time to redefine our role, to redefine our role as people who want to stay in the middle of this breakdown, who want to serve, and who make a commitment to train themselves so they embody the best qualities of being human, non-aggression, courage, presence, compassion, open-heartedness, patience, all of these things. So that requires a great deal of training, but it starts with a commitment that I want to I stay. I want to be of service. And um, yeah, we all have to come to some conclusion, some answer about how can I best serve this time. Now, the other aspect of that is the work locally, mobilizing communities, working at a more intimate local level, that is still where we find deep meaning. But yeah. we're not stopping this. We are just helping people prepare. And in, in my sense, we're helping people recognize that we can still be good human beings in the midst of terrible things happening. If you just think about World War One or World War Two, especially World War II, um, how did people get through that? You know, how to get people, get, get through that intense fear mm. that was everywhere about the loss of Western civilization, the potential loss of Western civilization. So people knew what was meaningful then. And I often feel that if we really understood we're at war now, we're at war for the human spirit, we're at war for life, we're at war for the planet. And then we'd get over ourselves. We'd stop hoping, well, I can still have a good life. <laughs> Or I could still think about myself in these unendingly narcissistic ways that mm. we're, we're conditioned for right now. And we would notice, do I want to serve? And if I want to serve, then there's paths forward. There's ways to serve, not Can like I, the old ones that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I just want to, I mean, I'm touched by what you're sharing. And, you know, as you share, I'm feeling the, 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 the weight of that. And again, it reminds me of the need for practice. And, um, you know, some, what would you say, because some people might say, oh, but in some ways, it's, you know, the potential right now has never been greater, um, you know. For what? Well, <laughs> Tell me well, for it, what. <laughs> like, um, yeah. 
well, for example, like certain teachings, spiritual teachings that are emerging, at, at, at least like in the Netherlands right. where I live, you know, in Amsterdam, everybody is interested in suddenly in, in what it is to be in deeper intimacy with others mm-hmm. or what is it? Who am I? Who, who am I on a fundamental level? Spiritual work, you know, it's yes. like you're, you're postman, you're a hairdresser and it's maybe Amsterdam is one of these islands, you know, I, I don't know if it, but, but so on the one hand, it, it, you know, it does seem to be something coming through. And, and I guess it links to a question yeah. I have. And is, this is all good. So let me ask you a question about this. And I spend yeah. a lot of time in the Netherlands now, and I'm not sure I would agree with, uh, you know, the, this being a majority movement, but, but there's certainly a lot going on there that's quite I don't positive. think it's in the whole of the Netherlands, but yeah, but yeah Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. Um, why are we, what's the purpose of discovering an inner life, discovering a spiritual life, uh, discovering a, a true sense, a profound sense of interconnectedness? Why are people seeking that? That's my question. Well, I think it's because of what you're talking about. You know, I think it's because, um, well, I, I mean, I think it's complex, you know, in one, in one way I might say, there's such a level of, um, you know, like that you look at Maslow's needs, like there's a, there's this level of wealth here that I think, and, and social, social kind of support that I think does enable a kind of, um, a certain self-actualizing inquiry, you know, like who am I on that level? But I do think it's also, it's just a, it's a response to these times we find ourselves in where, you know, the, the, the kind of systems and the structures that we've had, people are questioning those on a fundamental level. And therefore, who am I in those systems? And what is it to lead a human life? So uh, I, I do think it is yeah. some response, but it, it, I, don't, I don't propose that I have any answers or even a very No, I think this is very uh, good. I think it's very important. And the distinction I want to make is, for everyone who's learning to work with their mind, who's everyone who's learning to find a deep well of peace within, for everyone who's actually feeling their creativity now and wanting to contribute in different ways. I mean, the arts are on the rise, um, but that always happens in collapse. Um, all of that, what I want people to be in the question is, once I obtain these disciplines, these practices, what then? Am I going to use my own centeredness, groundedness, presence, compassion to serve others for what's coming? Or am I just doing this as a way of creating a personal level of meaning in my life? And I think right now I I keep track of many different offerings which are teaching focused on how we, how I get through this time. What I want people to be focused on is how do I serve in this time? And that's where I think we're being quite naive, frankly, that we have no idea of what collapse feels like. But look at Venezuela, 3 million people fleeing the country, carrying sacks of their belongings, seeking refuge in neighboring Latin American countries. 
all the migrants who are now in our doorsteps who are fleeing collapsed states. We have no idea. I have no idea. But you see these moments when panic breaks out, when water stops flowing, when electricity is turned off. How are we going to serve people who are panicked and fearful? And that's where I want us to go. And mm. not, not many people will go there. Historically, it's always a small group of people who decide to dedicate themselves in this way. But mm. I think we're all up to it. Yeah. I mean, somehow in that inquiry of, of um, you know, for example, becoming a coach or, or wanting to develop oneself, I think at some point you, you have to face like your own sense of precariousness and, and narcissism, right. you know, uh, like if you, if you're sincere on that path, like right. at some point you do, you do actually come up against that, you know, and I'm humbled by my own kind of uh, self-interest, you know, and so, but, but then but of course, does, that, don't you find Joel that, because we all start with self-interest, right? We all start, even if you want to get rid of your shadow and clean up, there's a lot of talk now about trauma. We just want to clean ourselves up so we don't suffer so much. That's always the first motivation. But then when you start to do that, you develop more compassion for other people. And then the people that you are coaching, you can approach with much greater compassion because you have moved from, I want to eliminate my own suffering to, I really want to serve in a way that eliminates another person's suffering or suffering in a, in a broader way. So I think this is all fine. But we just have to keep going. This is a spiritual path. We just yeah. have to keep going and realize that, that the great benefit of learning to clean ourselves up in some way, get rid of all, so much of the needs and the neuroses and the need for approval and respect and making money and all those things that are part of the professional world. Um, we need to honor the fact or, or recognize. And there's a promise with all of this work, which is intimate relationships one-on-one -on -one or with a community. That's where real joy is found. That's where independent of what's going on in the outer world, we experience communalism, commun communal relationships where I, thou, there's no real self and in those moments that's where we find joy now that has to be sufficient for the work that we're doing those moments when you're working with a client and you really feel oh i connected we're dwelling in sacredness right now because mm -hmm. these are two human beings trying to do good work and the good work isn't about career success or progression the good work is about how can I be a leader who serves other people at this time? And that's where I think coaching is, has an enormous possibility to it. But it, it requires a shift, as, as you've already outlined, in who we are and the work that we have done with ourselves. Um, and then the realization that, yeah, this is my work as a coach. Can I support any leader, any professional 
to really wake up to a new role for themselves, a new path of contribution. And it's not about working this, playing the game, working the system. It's not about that. It's about being there for people. And again, we're not talking about a majority of leaders, but there are enough of them out there that I think this is a, a great possibility for coaching. Mm. There's something for me about a kind of soul-infused service that comes online, yes. um, which is, you know, uh, you know it's, not, it's not this self-serving kind of leadership, which is about maintaining power. It's, it's, it's actually, yeah, it is. It's, a, it's about how can I serve the world? And something for me about when that came online for me, that deepened my coaching infinitely. Yes. And it, it, yeah. it created the space for other people to step into that, themselves you know so that's so i right. believe that's where coaching can you know that's what we're i mean i'm on fire for because co coaches rising i believe that coaches can play a powerful role and i would i've always said yeah. in helping us shift and navigate these times you know perhaps that we can bring in an, a kind of consciousness which will help us um move through these times and um you know so i think coaching yes. can be a vehicle for that and i used to feel I used to feel, um, what would be the word, you know, like am I being grandiose or arrogant saying that, but now I'm, I, I don't care anymore. It's like, That's wow. so good. That's so healthy. So I mean, healthy. It, yeah. We yeah. all have those voices uh, from in my own cosmology. That's our ego speaking to us saying, who do you think you are? You know, you're just an imposter here around talking about anything spiritual, you're arrogant, but that's not it. Uh, we're really on the right path when we realize that we want to um, surrender to this calling um, of, of how best to serve. And we need to be grounded spiritually. I don't care what your spirituality is, but you need grounding in a greater reality which is my definition of being spiritual, is you realize I'm not the game in town. I'm not, it's not that I'm not the only game in town. I'm just an infinite speck in the great cosmic game. And how do I use this moment and this privilege, this possibility, because we're still safe, well-fed, well-secured. How do we use that privilege? Uh, this is where I think privilege has gotten a very bad rap, but we don't need to go into that. Hmm. But as coaches, we are in a privileged position. We have other people who trust us, who need us there as companions, as sounding boards, and as prompts and provocateurs. So it's really the confidence of the coach that, that, needs to be focused on how much confidence do I have not with these voices that tell me I'm being arrogant and I should be more humble no if you see clearly that this person in front of you that you're coaching has the potential to develop a greater sense of uh, awareness a greater sense of opening to what is truly going on, but then also opening to wanting to serve people, which is the very old fashioned view of leadership these days, and is, and is seeking meaning. I mean, the one thing that I think we have, our greatest dynamic that works on our behalf right now <clears throat> is as people sense into 
what's going on and how powerless even senior leaders feel or how wrapped up in corporate machinations they are. They are seeking more meaning from life. Right. And these conversations, this quality of focus as a coach is a way, it's just where we started. What is the meaning of my leadership? What is the meaning I can create for this time in full recognition of where we are? Um, and it won't happen with every leader that any one of us is coaching, but to realize that when we do find that light or that little spark, and then we can support that person, um, that work, that's a meaningful work right there for both, both parties. I mean, you know, I like that you use that word provocateur and, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of interesting conversation or, or inquiry around, you know, because I don't want to become um, an activist, you know, just to become a kind of uh, part, you know, another polarized part that's fighting right. other polarized parts. You know, for me, there's a kind of, in a way, this soul infused service seems to come from the whole more. You know, it has to be. If you're talking soul, it's about yeah. your whole being, isn't it? Right. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and so, like, I like the word provocateur because I think we can, um, you know, I think there is, there is a dearth of meaning, you know, and there's, a, there's a, an incredible, uh, um, for me, at least seems to be people becoming interested in meaning, like you're saying, because we've been in this kind of flatland of, um, you know, scientific materialism in some way has you know, contributed to this sense of right. uh, superficiality. And so that, yeah, you know, I, and, and I guess what comes up for me is, is like, do you feel like, because in some way, like my, my service is guided by, we can, there's a way forward. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that way forward is, I'm, but it's like, there's some sense of an evolution and life unfolding and in and, and acknowledging that things are in collapse and that there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of things to be grieving about. And at the same time, there's just something in me that's just like this. Yeah. That there's some, this we're, we're going somewhere, you know, there's a sense of possibility or potentiality. And so I wonder for you how that is for you because you talk about collapse and it's like, do we just have to ride this collapse down? And then, you know, follow its natural cycle and then there will be a new level of emergence out of that collapse. Or is it something like, you know, that goes down, but we can, you know, we can. Yeah. <laughs> this you know, is a good question. Can we, because this is people, why I want my spoiler alert name sign is flashy now. Spoiler alert. Because what I just heard, which I hear a lot, is actually hope, hopefulness that that it's going like this, you know, the, the new is rising while the old is dying. I even had a whole model of change that talked about that, the double loops theory. But let's go to the reality that everything in life exists as a cycle. There are seasons, there are plants, there is growth and blossoming, and then there's autumn, and then there's death going underground for a while, and then new life comes forward. We're the only culture, Western culture is the only culture that disavowed a cyclical theory of history and instead said, 
No, it's always progress. We're always getting better. And that's what's involved in the looking for signs of hope right now is that, yeah, a lot of bad stuff is happening, but look at all the people who are learning mindfulness and who are focused on self, self-development in a healthy way. Um, so, so we're evolving as a species. And it is through us. I'm not speaking from me. I'm saying this is out there in, in the category of those who are working on conscious evolution. The belief is that if we get our shit together and become better people, that we will bring in a golden age. But it's up to us. So that puts an enormous responsibility on us. And it's very well ill-founded, but there's integrity to their thesis, which is that evolution, that we're living in a time of great potential progress. But progress is a myth. It's just a 300-year-old idea. If you go to the cyclical theory of history, after we get through collapse, the next age will be the golden age. Now, even in the time of Newton, this was still the dominant thinking in, in Greco, in Greek thought, and uh, Newton longed for the golden age. There's all this longing for what was past. Well, it's also future, but not right now. And it's not really up to us to, um, to bring in a golden age. It, it's the cycle of life. It's the cycle of civilizations. Now, the great unknown here is, will there still be a planet for humans to to experience a golden age? And uh, I think the judgment is still out on that one. But if you, if you accept the cyclical, which I don't know why you would think anything else was true, because we're living in cycles, cycles in our body, you know, birth, aging, death, we're living with daily cycles. We're li- you know, it's, it's just a rhythmic cosmos here that has cycles, it's on this planet at least, with living systems. So my, my fear is that we get so excited or focused even on it's up to us to create the golden age that we, we're going to be blindsided by what collapse the experience of collapse feels like, and we won't be prepared, and we will be bitterly disappointed. Um, so that's, that's one thing to be aware of. Anytime you hope, you bring in fear, and anytime you set these expectations for ourselves, like it's really up to us. I mean, this is the ultimate uh, anthropocentric hubris, really. Mm. What I want is people to be prepared in positions of leadership to embody the best human qualities because we need these as beacons, as memories, as reminders of what's possible with human beings, even in the harshest times. And so our experience of war, I think, is much more relevant than anything else to me right now, how we there's always noble people who appear and no matter what's going on, um, they know what the meaning of life is and they know what the, what selfless service looks like. And we've got a long way to go because we're so incredibly narcissistic at this point, but that always happens. 
So I am appealing only not to masses, but to the few people who always arise during these times. And I think that could be, it's something I want everyone to consider. That's why I titled a book, Who Do We Choose to Be? We have to make a choice here. And in your book, I was just seeing, you know, sort of you talked about the, the role of the leader now, and then you talked about restoring sanity. So how do we create islands of sanity that sustain our best human qualities? Could you say more about your vision or like how you see that being possible? Yeah, creating islands of sanity is actually doing everything that not only me, but many, many leadership people were suggesting, writing about, and then others were embodying, which is at that point, you're developing healthy community. You're focused on healthy relationships. We know how to lead in a participative way. We know how to engage people. It's just you apply that then within this bounded concept of an island, which means you know you are different and separate from the dynamics and pressures of the greater insane culture, this raging sea of insanity, uh, which is so visible now on a daily basis. Uh, it's the leader's role or with a group to actually cut themselves off from that as much as possible and to say, we're going to do this well. We know how to do it. We know how to engage people. We know that whatever the problem, whatever the problem, community is the answer. That's Burkana Institute's main slogan. And it's very true. So in an island of sanity, it gives you the possibility of uh, bringing people together and then using all of the participative, democratic, uh, thoughtful processes that have been lost in the past few years. But, but identifying yourself as an island is critical here. You're not ever going to change the raging sea and you're not ever going to convince people because of your outstanding example that this is what everyone needs to do. It is truly an island. And I find this somewhat ironic, but important to stress that all of my previous work and all of my previous longing was for systems-wide change. And I worked in very large systems, including the U.S. Army as the largest one, I think. And then the National Park Service is the second largest. How do we... Um, understand that now, given the times, given the dynamics, given the reality of what's going on, that we can still be good leaders, but at a much more uh, minimal level of scale. And that's the reason I am focused on this now is because of what I just said, what's going on now that mm -hmm. makes our previous attempts to change whole systems, what makes that impossible. So we have to understand the conditions of our time and then respond sanely to those. And where I am now is on the island of sanity concept. Mm -hmm. And I know of them and I know how hard it is to maintain them because you're still within the larger craze system. Do you, but yeah. Could you do, you, could, is it like, are you saying that these islands are, all over the place or are there specific ones that you could name that you see? No, I mean, any, if you know of any, I mean, we can do our own discernment here. 
if you know of a team within a larger system that's working really well and it has strong relationships, people are not stressed, they're just, and they're getting outstanding performance. That's an island of sanity. I knew, knew of them in many large corporations. Um, and it's hard work for the leader because uh, the leader is part of a greater leadership team that doesn't care about, doesn't want to know about, and in fact has deliberately remained uninformed about what works to create a high-performance team. So those examples, and I'm sure everyone can think of them, but if you're also working at a community level or uh, in a nonprofit, where I always look for what's the quality of relationships, mm. um, what's, uh, how meaningful does this work, work feel to people, and are they able to act in a way that is meaningful? I've been in a lot of high-meaning, high-vision organizations but people get incredibly frustrated because they can't do what needs to be done to truly enact the vision so just these are indicators and you will discover that they pop up everywhere these little islands these little places where good leadership is present and people are responding as they always do with higher motivation better relationships and better productivity. So mm. it's not, it's, you know, they're there. I think everyone can identify them. Sometimes you see it in a local school, mm -hmm. your children's school may be an example, or you see it in a locally well-run hospital. Um, yeah. You just keep your eyes out, they're there. Yeah, I, 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 it's like I, and as we speak, there's just that part of me that, that it, is, it is hope, you know? It's like... No, no, let's, let's just, let's work with this for a moment. Yeah, okay? yeah, no, I mean, that's why I wanted to share it. So, okay. so to voice it, because it's like, it is that part of me that's like, you know, for instance, on what you just said, it goes, yeah, but what if there was so many of those little islands that something, you yeah, know... that was my prior theory. I mean, I could refer you to articles where I wrote just that and worked with it quite a lot, that if enough of these new forms and islands were connected, we would emerge as a powerful system. It's too late. Mm. I wrote that article and Burkana, my institute, worked with it for many, many years. It's too late. We have to recognize the forces at play now. Even if you rule our climate, which you can't, but let's for a moment forget that we're in this perilous state. Um, we're not going to change the monetary system by creating local currencies. That was the hope. We're not going to change agribusiness by developing local farms. That was the hope and the work. We're not going to change this devastating education system in so many countries by these individual schools that are so wonderful for children. The systems are too large and have their own momentum now that they, they win, they won, okay? This is one of my messages frequently. That's why I have the spoiler alert sign flashing right now is that it's too late, it's too 
late. We've passed, everyone liked the idea of tipping points as a, a way to create positive change. Well, things tipped and they tipped in the other direction, including the climate, the climate has tipped. So, and our political system has tipped. It, it's better to recognize this. And then what, what I like us to focus on is what do these experiences of positive change, of people being fully engaged in their work, of leaders really working in a wise way, what they can give us is faith, not hope, but faith in the human spirit, in people's capabilities. <clears throat> so one of the questions we ask when people are applying for the Warriors for the Human Spirit training is, um, tell, tell us some stories of where you develop enough faith in people <laughs> that you actually want to undergo training. Mm. You know, and if you don't have those experiences of people's innate capacity and creativity, then why would you dedicate and sacrifice, you know, to train to support the human spirit? So what we can now see in all these outstanding examples um, is human capacity, the human spirit, the human creativity at its best. And we have to hold that because if you look around, you don't see it. So we become the memory keepers, the reminders, we become the embodiment. Mm. So other people still have an opportunity um, to realize, oh, we're not all bad. I was just listening to, uh, who was she? She said, well, I, I try to hold on to my good feelings about the human species. And she said, so I think we're 51% good. <laughs> mm. Only 51. We get one, one percentage point past the, the bad. But this is, this is what everything I'm saying right now is contained in the great spiritual wisdoms of every tradition. We have to rely on human decency on human creativity, on the, our great need to be together and to support one another. But it takes certain conditions for those best qualities to come out. And those conditions are local. Those conditions are feeling you're part of the community and you're there for each other. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm just thinking about the wars and, and what that did bring out in people. And in some sense, you know, use that word soul, but perhaps they were incredibly soul-making in many ways in that there were many people who went beyond themselves, you know, they accessed something beyond Absolutely. and, and, had and acted from that place and they, because they had to, you know? Yeah. Because they put themselves at risk. We're mm. really lucky. We don't have to do that maybe ever, but certainly not now. We don't have to put everything at risk. And if you were harboring Jews, you were at risk of being hauled off yourself in World War II. Or you're uh, working with immigrants along the American border. I mean, they have arrested people who are helping immigrants. Mm. You know? So, um, but again, it's, it's a quality of faith that, that I certainly feel now is that I'm not at all interested 
in what happens to me personally. I'm very, very dedicated and committed to how we can all experience our best selves. And I enjoy enormous safety and comfort and privilege and opportunity. And I'm trying to use that to the maximum advantage right now. Mm. Yeah, I'm touched. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Just letting myself feel everything we're talking this about. This is good. Yeah. Joel, you're a wonderful, wonderful interviewer for your personal um, exposure here. And, and, but the reason I want to take note of it is not so much to compliment you, but to uh, make it clear to everyone. Mm. We all have to go through this. I mean, what I'm saying has taken me years to absorb. Now it's so in, in my face that, um, that I have absorbed it. But then I, as I said earlier, I live with this sort of ground rootedness in despair but I'm not afraid of my despair and it's not the cause of my action. But we, we need to go through this of really accepting what is and then opening to what, what's the possibility of meaningful work, redefined, self-redefined. We have to each do it um, of how can I best serve this time. Yeah. And, um, and we need each other to do that. This is not solo work at all. It's about community. So we all need to really intensify whatever connections we have with kindred spirits and people who share this understanding of what's happening. And so they won't try and talk us out of it with like hopeful examples. Um, but we really do need to be together because we go through our, I mean, I'm speaking now from a warrior community that has over 200 people who've been trained. Um, you know, if I hit bottom, someone else that I'll talk to is really in a good place and if they're in a bad place, helps me come out of my despair so I can comfort them. But this is all about being together for comfort, for consolation, and to have fun. And I just wanted to add that because maintaining a good sense of humor in all of this is life-saving. It's actually essential. I mean, my Buddhist teacher has specified it as one of the five things we need to really be focused on. It's, mm. it's not cynicism. It's not sarcasm. It's just being able to see from a higher vantage point how absolutely ridiculous this is. You know, how mm. insane it is. And you laugh at it. It's very black humor, isn't it? You laugh at it, and then you go back in. You stay. So. It, I, I just, I was on a call with Joanna Macy uh, earlier this year, and she said, the ship, I mean, I was, she was just, the ship is going down. You know, I, mean, I don't know how old she is. She's like. She just turned 90. 90 years old. So, I mean, and the spirit in that woman, you know, anyway. Um, but she said, you know, this ship is going down. That's what I think now. And she said, go out and party, like go. And what she said was, I don't mean like, you know, hedonism. I mean, go to your community and, and celebrate humanity. Yeah. Just go and do it. You know, and it, it, it makes me emotional saying that now. Yes. And, and yeah. the transmission I felt in that, you know, it's very similar to what you're sharing. It's like, no, you don't. You, and she, she yeah she was like don't 
don't even think of um, turning away or um, what was she said? Don't don't even think of becoming a victim in this situation. Right. You know, he's like, you you yeah. got out, you get out there, and you party in community, you celebrate humanity. You know, and wow, I mean, yeah. I feel and I the would same. also add, I mean, Joanna and I are very dear friends at this point, uh, in frequent contact, and. I would add that you get into your community and you also work together very, very hard to prepare, mm. you know, that there's meaning in the work of preparation and uh, communities need to be prepared because otherwise we're just going to go down having great parties or great ob oblivion that will feel joyful, but it's actually oblivion. <laughs> So we need to use the resource of community, which is yeah. the most untapped resource we have. We need to be using it to get people to prepare. What's our water source? What's our food source? What's, um, how much contact knowledge do we have of one another? So, and celebrations are part of that, but, but doing the hard work mm. of preparation is also essential at this point. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Um, I want to ask you about uh, your training. You know, you've mentioned it a few times. And, yeah. um, you know, we're talking now about preparation. What, what are you doing in that training? And, yeah. Well, the training is um, for people who have been, are activists and leaders, community workers, or very committed retirees who really want to use their skill and experience in a useful way, uh, we, I would refer people to my website, margaretwheatley.com, because we just opened the invitation to apply for European-based training in the Netherlands in the end of April in 2020. Um, we focus on four, I think it's four, core areas, which is, first of all, knowing what it means to take on this role of warrior who, who is a warrior? And we are spiritual warriors, non-aggressive warriors. We commit to not adding to fear and aggression in the world. But it's a very noble tradition of, of being the few who stand apart and are very valiant and disciplined and dedicated. So it's an identity formation process in the way of uh, priests and nuns in many traditions. But then we teach the skills of developing a stable mind, which is through meditation and awareness practice. We develop the skill to see more, be free of our filters, and actually take in more information. This is important for leaders uh, through practicing direct perception. We understand mind-body awareness by doing Qigong. And we uh, form as a very good community. I mean, I'm so pleased with the strength of our community because we need each other. And so those are the four elements, but you can read this description. It's not a simple application process. You have to go through a, a period of contemplation, which I'm very pleased with, to really think whether you're ready to make this commitment. So it's not just a you all come kind of training program. It's a commitment, it's a lifelong commitment we're finding among most people. 
and to participate fully in the community as well. That's the simple part. But the training itself really stretches us to um, become much more aware and find ways to be of greater service. Mm. So. And I mean, of, of those, so many of those I, I, we could talk about for hours. Um, and um, goodly, I'm glad that I'm doing a number of them myself. What you said, like direct perception, what do you mean yeah. by that? Like, how, uh, that, do, how do yeah. you walk into a room and pick up the information mm. of what's going on? All your, all this information coming to you before you go into, oh, he's here. Oh, I don't, well, well what I can expect from her is this, or, oh, there they go again. Or, oh, I don't like the feeling of this. Wherever our internal judgments pop in they instantly color the situation and prevent us. So if you, if you walk into a room or you're in a conversation with someone and you feel you know them, that's not direct perception. That's working from past information and your history with the person. How to see each setting as each person as fresh and new and, and just catch it. I mean, of course we go through the world with our judgments of I like this, I don't like this, this is good, this is bad, I should be afraid, I should feel good. That's just the human mind at work. So the human brain at work is, is to go through life always assessing what's good, what's bad, what's what I like, I dislike. So direct perception, you just learn to capture what those moments feel like when you're just aware <laughs> and awake. And then to apply that in organizational settings, personal settings, it's a great benefit. So we're working with our filters, but at a very basic level of how do I just be in a situation taken as much as I can. I mean, um, it makes me think of, I've been reading about Goethe's way of science recently. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, this yes. difference between analytical or active and, and receptive um, yes. modes of knowing or being and how, you know, that receptive, which is quite intuitive, um, you know, how much similarity that has to meditative training. And Goethe it definitely an, does. It definitely does. Yeah. And um, I was just doing warrior training in Zimbabwe and the woman who offered direct perception was doing it from a Goethean perspective so yes oh yeah um, i thought yeah absolutely and there's more to it i mean um it's just a skill you develop now our teacher in this is a very well-known jazz drummer jerry grinelli and so he uses a lot of musical imagery that when he's playing if he interferes with receiving the music with receiving all that's coming to him. If he gets in the way, then the music stinks. So, um, because, so he, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just, I'm just that, excited pers now. that perspective of being, uh, working in a completely improvisational way, but being fully present is something that Jerry brings to the training. Unlike anything that, um, anyone else could do. I mean, I'm, I'm aware about the time. I know if we can just do another minute. I, I, um, I just think this is one of the modes of knowing, which is I see also emerging, albeit um, at the kind of, you know, the edges of, of society. I don't know if that's the right expression, but I do see, you know, numbers of people now 
who are interested in direct modes of perception, alternate modes of knowing, you know, holistic way, ways of knowing which are participatory right. from the whole rather than, you know, this kind of analytical mode which disconnects and abstracts out of experience, you know. And I, suddenly I'm, I'm noticing, wow, all these pe- there's people talking about this. You know, it's, there's something emergent. So There is something there, and I think there's also an important distinction to be made between, um, yes, we do want to get into alternate modes of perception, but as a coach or as a leader, this needs to be a well-developed skill without any enhancement <laughs> drugs or anything, that when I'm with someone, I really know what being present feels like which is I'm not interfering. I'm not bringing my own needs. I'm just fully here. And the minute I'm not here, I notice so I can come back to here. This takes quite a lot of training. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, We could talk about that for ages. I I, want to just say thank you so much for this I have enjoyed this Although, very much. You know, in a way it's like it's not enjoyable, <laughs> not but it's real. I want to say thank you, but no, I do want to say thank you, of course. And yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed myself so much. So I hope we get the chance to speak again because you know, we're just touching now into topics that yes. greatly interest me too. I think, you know, these these things are so potent for coaches that we just tapped into this kind of presence. That's right. That's right. So let's talk again about that at some point. We can do that. And thank you for the opportunity to give voice to these things, which are so important for me to speak these days. Mm. So thank you, Joel. Hello, Joel here again. And just a quick one to say, I'd be grateful if you would share this podcast. I'd love as many coaches to benefit from these conversations as possible. If you're willing to leave a review in iTunes, that's always super cool. And you can find more podcasts like these at coachesrising.com. You'll also find all the really cool online trainings that we offer for coaches, uh, including many of the people that you will hear in these podcasts. All right, until we next meet, be well. Thank you.